What we're going to see this morning in Acts is that the church that Jesus is building, which is the, the title of the series, is made up of rescued people who, in the words of Jesus, ought always to pray and to not lose heart. Jesus said this in uh, Luke chapter 18 before he told a parable to help his disciples. What we know about prayer and what prayer tells us about God is this. It tells us that God is available to be spoken to. It tells us that because God is available to be spoken to, it means that God is always available to hear you. Do you, do you know that? So God is available to be spoken to and he hears us. He hears your praises. He heard your praises this morning. And in some of those praises, there were pleadings and he heard those pleadings. He hears your complaints. Do you know that? He hears your depression. He hears your anger. He hears your injustices that you cry out to him with. He hears your disillusionments. He hears your neediness. He hears your fear and your anxiety and your hopes and your dreams. And so if all of that is true, and we would say as the church, we believe that's true, that God is available to be spoken to and that he hears us, if all that's true, uh, the question then that would sort of surface in our hearts would be why would we not pray given that the creator of the universe is there to be spoken to and to hear all of those things. And in reality, what we, what we understand about our lack of prayer and where it comes from is that it comes from a lack of belief in the one we're not praying to, believe it or not. But when the church faces a crisis, and its first response is to pray, is to get on its knees, what we see is that God responds in really unexpected ways. And while he's responding in unexpected ways, something else is happening in that his word is increasing and multiplying. And so Acts 12 here, it's a glimpse of how God asks when the church, how God acts when the church is asking him for things in desperation and with expectation. And this is exactly what we see here in Acts 12. And let's just start right in verses one through five. It says this, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands, it says, on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unlimited bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So let's just stop right there because what we see is that the church now is entering another uh, sort of phase of persecution, going into a crisis mode. And its first response here, it says in verse 5, is that they made earnest prayer. And here's the scenario. Barnabas and Saul, remember we saw last week, they're in Antioch. And they're preaching the gospel. And they're there for a year and this whole movement is happening in Antioch. And while they're away, what we see here in, in chapter 12 is that the church comes under persecution by a guy named Herod. Now there were, there were a few different Herods. This particular Herod was a guy named Herod Agrippa. He happened to be the grandson of Herod the Great, who by the way, was the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Even more peculiar, when we're talking about Herod's, was the fact that Herod Agrippa's grandmother uh, was Jewish. 
And so what that meant for this particular dude, this particular Herod, was that he could rightfully claim some affinity with the Jewish people, which history tells us he did. Although, in the end, it turns out, and we're going to see this, that his ambitions were not really spiritual but they were political ones. So he kind of used this Jewish bloodline that had been given to him to sort of get in with the Jewish people politically. So as a, as a way to gain that kind of favor with the Jewish people, he does this crazy thing where he beheads James, the brother of John. This was the same uh, James who Jesus called one of the sons of thunder. So this would have been a brother that was not shy about uh, spreading the word of the gospel and be really blatant about it, which obviously pushed against Herod a little bit. And he thought, hey, as the Jewish religious leaders continue to oppose this new Christian gospel, man, I'm going to take out one of their key leaders. And this is going to give me some favor with the people that I want to be on on my side politically, right? And so this is the scenario. This is as we come into chapter 12, this is what's happening. And one of the questions that might come to mind is, even as we read this, is why would God allow James to be martyred, right? I mean, that would be a normal thing for us to think that. In other words, if Jesus is building his church, like this seems like an odd strategy for multiplication. Let's, let's just take out one of the, the key leaders. And what we find in scripture is that the question of why is not one we get answered often. Whatever God had in mind by allowing the death of one of his disciples was ultimately for some good, some meaningful purpose that actually we get an inkling of as the passage unfolds. So here's what happens. After Herod sees how much the Jews approve of James's death, he arrests Peter puts him into prison, intending to bring him out to the people after this feast, this feast of unleavened bread, this Passover feast that goes all the way back to Moses. And the reason why he had to wait was because no executions were allowed during the feast. So Herod, man, this dude is strategic. He's not only diabolic, but he's strategic, which means you can only imagine the mood of the church at this particular moment after James has died and they're grieving and Peter is now awaiting execution. You can imagine how uncomfortably dark the mood of the church might have been. It would have been hard for the church. By the way, just like you, when you face uncomfortably dark scenarios to ask the question, how can God possibly help us out of this mess? Right? In other words, you might ask the question like the church may have asked the question, which is what power do we possess to stop a power like Herod? And you know, you will experience moments in your life when the deck feels so stacked against you like the church is experiencing here that you can't imagine any rational way out because there ain't one. There isn't a rational way out. Now, remember, James has been killed. There's no reason to think that Peter, by the way, this apostle that God has used so instrumentally in the birth of the early church, there's no reason to think he's going to be spared. If we could get a look into your life when the bottom falls out and you're dealing with the grief of loss and the prospect of more bad news, what would we see you doing in this moment? And by the way, this is always the question that you're faced with. This is always the question that we're faced with. What will be our first 
response. Who are we seeking to please in the moment when all of this unpleasing news comes to the surface? Well, we see what Herod did. Herod sought to please the Jews and he responded to their applause of his beheading James by arresting Peter. Who does the church seek to please as they respond to what Herod has done? We're told in verse 5 that the church responds by making earnest prayer. It doesn't just say prayer. It says earnest prayer. What does earnest prayer mean? What does that word mean? It basically means that they prayed without ceasing. Now, Paul would later write to the Thessalonian church and tell them, he said this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So here's what's so interesting for us, is that the church responds not by attempting to hatch any sort of elaborate plan of escape for Peter, but by getting on their knees and doing what the world would consider, wait for it, doing nothing, right? It's a response that the world and many in the church would consider a waste of time. Like, what are you guys doing? You're just holing away in this house, getting on your knees and praying? Like, tell me what you're doing. No, 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 what are you doing? And the church is, we're praying. It's a response that might even look like giving in. It's a response that would look like accepting the inevitable by putting up no fight whatsoever, right? And so what we get here is that the feebleness of prayer is astounding. And it hits at a place in us that says, I got to do something. And getting on my knees and going before God is doing nothing. The lack of strategy, right? The lack of hands-onness. The lack of conceiving a plan is what makes prayer one of the most fragile but as we'll see here, most faithful responses for the church. David Pallison, he says this. He was an author and a, and a theologian. He said, prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. So in this way, what we can do is we can imagine prayer like kind of like meeting a friend have you ever met a friend as a designate, at a, like just designated location? Imagine it like saying, hey, why don't we meet up at this place? But when you get there, you find out they were already there. And not only were they already there, but they had always been there waiting for you. So that's what it's like for our life to meet God. We come and we find that he was already there waiting for us. And so seen in this light, prayer, you know what prayer is? Prayer is a lot like going home for us. And so the church's first response here in this moment of crisis is prayer. And when, by the way, the church's first response is prayer, we see that God responds. And he responds in unexpected ways. Let's pick up in verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door uh, regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. 
He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Verse 11, now, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many people were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This would have been James, the brother of Jesus. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So what we see here is as the church responds in prayer, God responds in some unexpected ways. And so what we get here is just this kind of incredible story of Peter's rescue. And make no mistake, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he wants us to know that Peter is under lock and key, right? Four squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers, sleep, the guy's sleeping between two of them, chained to two of them. I mean, this is, this is like the ultimate escape room, right? Except literally there is no way out of this one until suddenly an angel, a messenger from the Lord, appears beside Peter, lights up the cell. The chains fall from his hands and the angel leads Peter out. So God responds to the prayers of the church by organizing a supernatural escape. And by the way, it's so unexpected that Peter is convinced he's dreaming the whole thing up until the angel leaves and he's alone on the street. Now, what we don't want to miss here is what an accurate picture of what our rescue from sin looks like. And how unexpected it was for any of you that have been saved. How unexpected that saving is. Some of you, listen to me, have lives that were so visibly wrecked and beyond help and beyond saving before God saved you that when he did, everyone around you was in disbelief that God worked the way that he did and that it was even possible some people look at you and go, I can't even believe it. I almost don't even know if it's true. And yet it's true, right? For some of you, your lives look so good and so moral from the outside that people were confused when they saw the way God changed you, right? They were like, dude, you're not a bad guy. Why do you think you need all this rescuing and saving? But it's when a person finally sees their need to be rescued that God saves a person from them believing they didn't need to be rescued, right? God saves good people from the condemnation of their self-righteousness. And it's a miraculous work. In fact, everybody in this church, our church, that has been rescued by Jesus 
has experienced a miracle as miraculous as Peter did in being delivered from this prison cell. It is literally the same thing. And that's what we get a picture of here. Matthew Henry, another old theologian, says, the deliverance of Peter represents to us our redemption by Christ, which is often spoken of as the setting of prisoners free, not only the proclaiming of liberty to the captives, but the bringing of them out of the prison house. Do you realize you were like in a prison house before God set you free? Some of you from just your vast amounts of unrighteousness. Many of you from your vast amounts of self-righteousness. Either way, it's all the same in the end. But then it kind of gets funny here, right? Because Peter shows up at the house of Mary. Um, this was a place that he understood and knew that he would be able to go and find shelter and hide away. And this servant girl named Rhoda recognizes his voice and runs away, right? Just leaves him standing all vulnerable outside the door, right? Pete's like, hey, wait, wait you know, all right, you know, here I am, Right? And then when she tells the others that Peter is standing there, they don't believe her. They're like, Rhoda, either you've lost your mind or you're seeing things, right? And what's so interesting is that they don't believe Rhoda's story, right? So get the picture here, kind of back up a little bit. Here they are. They're praying ceaselessly for Peter's deliverance. He actually shows up at the door, delivered, and they're like, stop, you're losing your mind, crazy girl right? I mean, the shock that their prayer is being answered tells us something about, that, about the degree of faith that we all pray with, doesn't it? On one hand, you think, man, they prayed for Peter's deliverance, and God delivers Peter. I mean, I'd be like, dude, here's a list of things that I want you all to pray for immediately. Like, let's get this, like, let's get this show on the road, right? Like, God's hearing us. He's answering us. But on the other hand, they seem like they have so little faith because when God answers their prayer, they don't even believe it. And of course, that probably sounds familiar if we apply it to our own life. That when we come before the Lord and we have those moments when we are praying to him, we are praying ceaselessly and earnestly. There's a part in us that believes that he's going to answer our prayer. And then there's this part of us in the flesh that just thinks there's no way he can possibly answer this prayer, I don't see any rational way around it. And we struggle in the tension of that. You know what the church did? Struggling through the tension of that? They just kept praying. They kept praying. And so there's probably never going to be a moment in any of all of your lives where you're not praying through the tension of belief and unbelief. But the question isn't to back away and say, well, let me just... Let me, let me just get a little more belief before I pray. No, the Lord wants you to come to him with your equal measures of belief and unbelief so he can show you how he works in the fragility and the frailty of your human heart, right? Now, it goes super bad here for the guards, obviously. When Herod comes to get Pete, Pete is gone, um, and again, if you were a soldier back then and you had somebody under your care and under your, your guardianship, if they were missing, if they went invisible the next day, it meant your, your life. And then it goes super bad for Herod because as the church prays for Peter's deliverance, God was planning far more than what they could ask 
or think. Look what it says in verse 20. Now Herod was angry, kind of shifts gears here a little bit, narratives. Herod was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. So he was having a, a tiff with these two cities. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So what this story actually recalls for us, if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Remember that story? Some of you might remember when Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the rooftop of his royal palace, and he said, he made this comment, He said, is not this great Babylon? He was the Babylonian king, the most powerful man in the world. He said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, hey, Neb, we a little little kind of full of ourselves here a little bit? And in that moment, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was driven from his kingdom and lived, wait for it, like an animal for seven years. Like literally... God allowed him to temporarily lose his mind. And he lived like that. He lived out in the fields and in the grass. And it said, and he howled to the moon and he, like he ate you know, grass and, and weeds and flowers and hung with the animals and was just literally out of his mind until it says his reason returned to him. What happened when his reason returned to him? It says he gave God the glory that was due him. Now, Herod... Our boy Herod here did not have it that easy, but was immediately struck down for failing to give God glory. And so more than anything, what this shows us is the seriousness of how God takes his glory. And we see a contrast actually here between Herod and Peter. Remember when Peter went to the house of Cornelius a couple weeks ago and they all tried to worship Peter. What did Peter do? What was Peter's first response? He said, stop. He said, I am a man just like you. Worship God. Give glory to God. But Herod, on the other hand, he basks in the glory that is God's glory alone. And so what we see here is it's better to be awaiting execution for preaching the truth of Jesus than eaten by worms for proclaiming a lie about yourself. Right? This is what Al Mohler says about this passage. He says, Herod exalts himself and takes upon him praise that is only due to God. But in the end, he is a mere creature that returns to the dust and is eaten by worms. And the irony is unmistakable. He says, our pretending to be something more than what we really are is ultimately the epitome of foolishness. Our final end is to become worm food. Thanks, Al. Only God who made us and who made the worms is enduring and eternal. And then he says, when we forget this, we lose our humility and we lose our awe at the fact that God would be in any way mindful of us. So we see here at the end, 
um, that as the church prays, as God acts in unexpected ways, God does far more than what they could ask or think. And in the end, God reclaims his glory. His glory is reclaimed for himself. And his word increases and multiplies. And what we're reminded about God's word in 1 Peter 1, 24 says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So in the end, it's God's word that we never have to worry about or fear. In our prayer, in our earnest prayer, we never have to fear that God's word is going to lose out in the end. God's word wins. Like Pastor Nick said last week, God's word is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. So what should the church expect then? Let's finish with this. When it prays. What should the church, given what we learn here in Acts 12, what should the church expect when it prays? By the way, praise, not demand, right? But should be expectant for, number one, we should be expectant that our belief will be challenged but sharpened. 1 Peter 4 tells us this. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know what Peter's saying? Quit freaking out because you're a Christian and stuff ain't going your way. Quit acting like something's wrong and something's unusual. This is what he says in how to respond. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's something in our suffering that is leading us to a revealed glory that is going to cause our hearts to rejoice as it's being given to us. So remember this, your belief will be challenged in prayer, but it will also be sharpened. And remember this, your doubt is not the last word. Your doubt is not the last word. By the way, what do we see here? We see here that the death of James gave way to the death of a tyrant. The death of James gave way to the prayers of the church that led to the death of a king that was persecuting the early church. Now that's a belief that was challenged, but it was sharpened, wasn't it? Number two, the church should expect that prayer is how God increases our faith. Prayer is how God increases our faith. James chapter 5, 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay? And then it reminds us of this, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we need to remember that. Sometimes, listen, we don't pray because we feel like we need to build up a reservoir of faith. Not realizing that prayer is how God builds your faith. Listen, praying when your faith is weak is the first step of faith toward increasing your faith. Does that make sense? And by the way, God acts despite the degree of faith we have when we pray, right? So we were, last week, we, our card broke down. We were heading to Indianapolis to do some ministry out there and our car broke down on the way out there. So we had to get a rental car and then when we came back, we had to you know, 
grab our car from the rental place and then kind of hope that it made it back to Ashland so that we could get it checked out, right? And it was overheating and this mess, you know? And um, so I'm getting in the car and I'm like, I don't think it's gonna work, right? I, I think it's gonna overheat. We have to stop like nine times on the way to Ashland and I'm just, you know, I'm grieving my life and um, all of these things. Um, so I'm literally just thinking, I don't think it's gonna work, you know, it's gonna overheat, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? That's what I did. There's a part of you that believes it might work. I thought maybe the car would make it, so I, I tried. And I made it all the way back to Ashland and it, it didn't overheat. But what I was saying in that moment is I, I can't believe I made it back to Ashland without it overheating and yet it, it did in spite of the fact that I didn't believe it was going to. How many times have you uttered that phrase? I can't believe it. How many times, a week, a day, I, dude, I can't believe it. I can't believe that just happened all the time. Kind of like what happened to the church when Rhoda said, hey, by the way, Pete, he's at the door. Your prayers have been answered. Impossible. But prayer is how God increases our faith. Do you think the church had more or less faith after that prayer had been answered? And then number three, what should the church expect when it prays is that God goes above and beyond. Thankfully, listen to this, our prayers will always come short of expressing all of God's good desires. Isn't that a grace, right? Colossians 4.2 reminds us, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So as we pray, we need to watch we need to sometimes expect the unexpected. Why? Because of Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ, Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, God goes above and beyond. This means every time you pray, there are things you're not asking that God is still providing. It means that there are things you're not even thinking that God is planning to provide in his own timing and in his own way. And we get this confidence from this. Turn to Romans, go back a, a book. No, I'm sorry, go forward a book. I don't know what I'm talking about. Romans 8, and we're going to read one of the most beautiful passages here about God's love and about the fact that God is not somebody who merely just does what we ask him to do, because how horrible would that be? Do you want God to take the way that you think about things and the limitations of your mind and just keep it right on that line? How miserable would that be if we served a God who never did more than what we ask or think? Because I need him to do a heck of a lot more than what I ask or think because I don't even know what I'm asking half the time. And I certainly don't know what I'm thinking most of the time when I come before him in prayer. But look at what Romans 8, 31 says. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then he says this. He says, don't believe me then? Great. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge then against God's elect? Who will come against you then? He's saying. Because it is God who justifies. 
Nobody on earth. And then he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Then he gives us this rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? So why wouldn't you pray when you have this kind of inseparable love given to you by a God that is so for you? And by the way, was so unsparing towards you. Why wouldn't you pray to the God who provided his son who is interceding for you so that, listen to this, your earnest prayers reach the ears of God? But what's hard for us is that prayer is self-denial. And every time we pray, we are denying ourselves. Prayer is saying there's something wrong and I don't have what it takes to fix what's wrong. It's a denial of self-glory. But to not pray is to think that you have the stuff it takes to fix what's wrong. And then when it still goes wrong, you end up punishing yourself, others, and ultimately God. And so what prayer does is prayer puts God in the pilot seat of your life instead of making him co-pilot. Remember those stickers, God is my co-pilot? It's like the worst theology of all time. John Piper in his book, Desiring God, he says this, because God is unique as an all-glorious, totally self-sufficient being, he must be for himself if he is to be for us. The rules of humility that belong to a creature, that's us, cannot apply in the same way to its creator, that's God. If God should turn away from himself as the source of infinite joy, he would cease to be God. He would deny the infinite worth of his glory. He would imply that there is something more valuable outside of himself. He would commit idolatry. So prayer, what it does is it gets us face-to-face as frail people to the glory of God being the all-sufficient thing that we are consistently lacking in our lives. And so when our first response is prayer, God's going to act in unexpected ways. And at the end of the day, his glory is going to shine greater because his word is going to multiply and increase. And what we pray for is that the desire of our hearts would be for that at the end of the day. And by the way, this is what we are celebrating as we take communion this morning. The glorious God who didn't fail to act on behalf of people who fall on their knees and cry to God to be delivered from their sins. By the way, if this is you this morning, we invite you to partake of this bread and cup that symbolizes the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Listen, don't close your Bibles yet. This is what Jesus gave to his disciples on the night before his death as a way to remember him. So listen, when we come to the table remembering Jesus in a couple minutes here, knowing that in this moment his presence is near to us, that in this moment we are being strengthened and nourished by his atonement for our sins, which covered the ransom we owe and the price we could never 
pay. This is what we know. That God is the God who is with us. He's the God who listens to us when we speak to him. He's the God that's available to hear our pleas and our cries and our praises. Now, if you're with us this morning, but you don't yet identify as a Christian yet, let me just say a couple of things. Um, And the first one is this, we love you. Um, And we're really glad that you're with us. And we want you to know this God who is with us and hears our prayers. But this communion, this particular moment is not yet for you. Because before you take part in something symbolic, you need to receive the real thing. And so we would encourage you, as this is unfolding in our church service, that you would take a minute to go before God and acknowledge your sin before him. And maybe you have lived a life of self-righteousness, but never really known a righteous God. And maybe for some of you, you've lived a life of so much unrighteousness that you felt you could never go before a righteous God. Both of you, both of those categories, um, God is here to receive you and your repentance and to pull you into himself and to love you and to hear you and to make his home with you, which is what the Bible tells us. So I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, uh, the ushers are going to come up. They're going to get the elements. We're also going to have um, ushers in the back. We're trying to we'll have two in the front and one in the back. So whatever's closest to you, you'll have that option this morning because we are expanding today. So let, let's pray. Ushers will come up while I'm praying. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. Lord, we pray that like the church in Acts here in chapter 12, that our first response to you would be prayer and that we would pray in such a way that we would have a a humble expectation for the ways in which you will act, that you will do far more than we ask or think and what a glorious thing that is. And God, we pray that your word would continue to increase, that it would multiply in this town for the sake of your name, for the sake of the gospel. So God, humble us as we come to the table Um, as we go before you and we consider our sin before you, we consider um, relationships that are broken that we may need to do some work on. Lord, I pray that we would come before you with hearts that are willing to receive this strengthening right now and this nourishing that we need. Because what this symbolizes is that what we need was provided for us on the cross. We need the body and the blood of Christ because nothing else can save us from our sins. So we thank you for that truth. It's a sobering truth. It's also a happy truth. So we come before you today with equal parts sobriety and equal parts happiness because we want to thank you, Lord, that we have atonement. We want to thank you that we don't have to die and waste away in our sins. We don't have to waste away in self-righteousness and unrighteousness but we can have the righteousness of Christ placed on our account. So God, would you do this work in us as we receive your nourishment for our lives today with joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.